Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Elaine's mission? End the silence, stigma, and shame about suicide, ideation, and mental health. Sharing your burden can lighten your load. Elaine says we must normalize the conversation to make it easier for you to voice your pain and be able to ask for help. Reaching out to another human being when you're in need of a listening ear must become the norm. Please note, the Suicide Zen Forgiveness podcast is for education only. Some of this subject matter could be triggering. For those of you that are either grieving or having mental health problems, please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. And now, here's your host, Elaine Lindsay. I am so thrilled to introduce you now to Jill McLennan. Thank you so much for coming to join us. We have given information about you being a death doula, and there is so much more to you and what you do. I thought, as usual, people who know me know that things are conversations here. We're just going to go where the information takes us. I think the universe has a hand in what we say and what we do. So without further ado, I'm just gonna let you go ahead, Jill. Give us what you got. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on today. I really appreciate it. These are important conversations to have. I love talking about the hard stuff. That's just, I don't know, it's always been how I am. And I think talking about death and dying and grief and suicide and these things that we normally really shy away from because they make us uncomfortable are really the conversations that are the most important to have. So I appreciate you bringing me on to have this conversation. It's so wonderful because the mission with the podcast is about Ending the silence, the stigma, and the shame surrounding suicide, loss, ideation, and ultimately mental health. But every step we take to include other disciplines that are within this space just show us how much we don't talk about. And and I'm before you go on, I will say I was one of the worst offenders. My grandmother lived with us when we first came to Canada. So as she got old, she's always been in my life. And I did not deal well with the thought of her getting old and dying. And death and dying, I would not allow anyone to say those words. I lost my dear friend when I was 16 and it messed me up. And I think that's part of why the conversations became even more taboo for me. Yes, I find that a lot of people, especially somebody that had a really traumatic loss when they were younger, that they didn't heal from, they didn't process, they weren't getting any support around it. So they held it all in. And then as soon as anybody said anything relating to death or dying, all of that old grief starts to bubble up. And we're so afraid we're going to get consumed by it, that we're going to drown in it if we do let it out, 
So what do we do? We shove it down. We shut the conversations down. But really all that does then is pile on more of the pain and the shame and the fear. And I know it's not easy, especially when it's a grief that we haven't processed that we've held in, but it is doable to work with all of our unprocessed grief because it really will make it so that when we do have to face our grandparents, our parents, our spouses, God forbid our children, when we have to face the death of somebody that is really close to us, if we haven't processed that old grief, it will bubble up and it'll feel very overwhelming because we're already so invested in this emotional situation that we don't need all this other stuff coming up, but it's going to. So it just compounds. So if we could just work with it now, it really will make it easier in the future. That's a really good point. And something, I don't know if this is of import, but losing our pets can be devastating when you're holding on to all this other grief. It just, it makes the weight of the grief absolutely unbearable. For people that have pets, there's a lot of people that are closer to their pets than they to than they are to any human, partially because we don't have that same interaction. And when we interact with other humans, we've got the emotions and the pain and the joy and the like attachments and all this other stuff that comes from both sides of the equation. Where for pets, for the most part, they love us unconditionally. They're always happy to see us. Like they don't talk back to us. They are just that unconditional love and support. And so for somebody that maybe has never found that in another human, that level of trust and connection, the death of a pet is even more devastating than the death of any human in their life. But yet society, at least in America, but I feel like most places, society does not allow us to grieve properly, really anything, but no. especially if it's a pet or the ending of a relationship, like these things that we view as, well, it's just a dog. Like, why don't you just get over it? Yeah. And yeah. when you get met with that type of reaction from the people that you work with or the people that you interact with or your family, then again, what do we do with all that grief? We bottle it all up and we put it inside and hold on to it with this feeling of shame and embarrassment over feeling so much grief over something that is viewed in society as not that big of a deal. And another thing I think, and I've seen in others, but I know work colleague who we were really close and I lost one of my dogs and it was very sudden. The dog was very young. It was a horrific incident. And that very statement, oh, we'll just get over it. It's been five days or something. And that person is no longer in my life. Mm -hmm. But part of it was not just stuffing down the grief, but there was this anger that piled on the grief. And that has a whole bunch of other detrimental connotations for cortisol and, and other things that we really don't need. People don't realize that grief is not just sadness. 
that there is anger, even if it's somebody that we loved dearly when they die, we can be surprised by the anger that we feel towards them for leaving us the way that they left us. Even the little things that we wouldn't expect to feel. In some cases, there is even relief. There's a little bit of this sense of they're not in pain anymore. This actually is easier for me now that I'm not giving so much of my time to care for them. And then there's that shame that comes with that. It's not that we're relieved that somebody we love died. It's that the situation has ended. But again, because we don't talk about grief and we don't deal with it, we have to deal on our own alone. And that's such a lonely place to be for so many people is when somebody dies, they feel like there's nobody that understands. There's nobody that is willing to hold the space and to sit and to listen without the judgment, without trying to say they're in a better place, or it's just a dog or ever that people say, but that's because they're uncomfortable. It's their own feelings of, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And they blurt out things that just is repeating what they'd heard. And I think that's, I think that's something that it's really important having you and having people that deal with death and dying giving people a little bit of a roadmap of what to do and what to say, what is appropriate, what isn't appropriate, because all those things we don't talk about, we don't have any way to manage them. We None of us came with a handbook. That's just the way it is. But I think this is something that we even need to give our children a way to to talk about it in for their age group, of course, but to be able to understand that we aren't here forever. And when you lose a grandparent, like when you're really young and you lose an aunt or an uncle or a cousin, you need to say something. I come from an older generation. Nothing was said. And half my family's Irish, so there were these insane parties. But there was still dancing around why everybody was there. we, We don't talk to children in a way that, excuse me, in a way that makes it age appropriate, but honest. Because we've, and then think about everything, drugs sex, death, any of it, we really don't talk to children in a way that opens up a conversation for them. But again, that's our own discussion. You know, I think about talking to my children about death. I have no problem. It's easy for me. We have great conversations. Sex, on the other hand, I get uncomfortable. I'm navigating it. I'm taking classes. Like I'm doing the best that I can because it's my discomfort that is making it harder. They just have questions or they just are starting conversations that then when there's that part of me, it's like, oh gosh, oh gosh, where's this going? I don't know. I just need to pause and take a breath and do the best that I can. But that's the way that we all, I didn't talk to my parents about death. I didn't talk to my parents about sex. I didn't talk to my parents about drugs. And so when I'm trying to navigate that nail as a parent, 
It's a lot of unlearning, relearning, not always doing it right, being uncomfortable, making us all uncomfortable. <laughs> like you have to go through the whole thing. And one of the things that I think is interesting as well is when we think about how many children grow up without a parent, not even because of death, yeah. right? How many people grow up in single family homes, dad or mom is gone, um, whether it's because there's divorce, maybe somebody's in prison, maybe somebody's just traveling a lot because of yeah. their job. We don't talk to children about that feeling that they're feeling of yeah. loss, of sadness, of grief. And we need to, because then again, we get into these schools and there's a child in my son's school that kind of bullies a lot of the kids. And I picked them up the other day at school and they said, oh, this, like he bullies everybody and he's always doing this and he's doing that. And, and my initial reaction was at first to be like a little angry. Don't mess with my kid. Don't mess with my kid's yeah. friends. What are you doing? And then I thought about it more and I thought, I wonder what his life is like at home. What is happening to him that it's making it so that he feels better by dumping a bottle of water on somebody's head or pushing them or saying something like there's something going on for this child because we're going to let that anger and that upset and that frustration out. And as somebody that grew up without my dad around, I didn't know that really I was grieving. I was feeling a sense of loss. I didn't know that's what it was. And so when I got into high school and I started having hormones and I started interacting with boys and drugs and alcohol and like all these things, I didn't know that I was trying to fill a hole inside of me to numb that pain of that grief of that loss and as an adult, I could look back on it now and be like, oh, you poor thing. Like, I just want to go give her a little hug. But I didn't know at the time because nobody talked to me about no. it. And for me, I don't think we give children enough credit for understanding, albeit at their level, but understanding these difficult things. And especially for kids of divorce. You hear a lot of people later in therapy, they talk about the fact that they felt guilty, that somehow it was their fault. I don't think I've told the story on here, but my mom and dad might have had an argument, I don't know, once a year. But my mother would pack a suitcase and she was going to take us away. The second time it happened... I thought I would be helpful, and I picked up the suitcase. Very, very light, but it flew open. And the only thing in it were two of my father's shirts. <laughs> I think I was eight. And I remember thinking, that's weird. Why would we take Daddy's shirts if he's staying here? But nobody answered my questions, and I didn't even know what other questions to ask because my mother was so angry that she'd been caught out in, you know, she, she wasn't really going anywhere. <laughs> and it's almost like when you find out there's no Santa and that sort of thing, it was, oh, I knew. It didn't happen for another year or two, but I knew it was a bluff. And so it was a lot easier on me because I knew this was 
it was just a, you know, a kid thinks it's just a little play, like there's nothing really happening here. But if growing up, your parents talk about the fact that not everybody gets along all the time. And sometimes people get mad at each other, but it blows over and life goes on. It would make things a lot easier for children to be able to process without that added burden of taking on the guilt and taking on the onus for what is happening with the parents. Yes, and we do need to learn as parents, we need to learn to do these things different because so often we just fall into the patterns where I see my mother in certain things that I do, especially if I'm stressed and I'm upset. I see my father-in-law and my husband, especially when he's stressed and he's upset. And so it takes being really honest with ourselves sometimes of having, again, those honest conversations. And even yesterday, my daughter and my son were arguing with each other about something stupid. And she got really upset. And she said, you always take his side and you don't take my side. And you know, he's your favorite. And we went back and forth a little bit. I tried to really listen to what she was saying. And then I said to her at one point, what do you think I should do? Should I punish him? Should I take things away? Should I hit him? What, what is it you think I should do differently? Because I am trying to learn. And I don't want to do things the way that everybody else does them. But that also means that there's some things that I don't know the right way to do it. So I'm trying my best to make sure that both of you are being kind to each other and that I am disciplining in a way that makes sense, not just punishing and taking things away. And she didn't really know either, but at least we had this conversation of, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm learning. I'm trying my best. And honestly, if you have some better ideas, <laughs> tell me. <laughs> like you might think of things that I don't think of, but we're not taught to do that. We're mm-hmm. taught to teach children to be like us and we're the authority figures and we do everything and if they don't listen, they get punished. It's it is definitely not always effective and it does translate into all of the really difficult conversations in life Mm -hmm. with kids that if we can't start by saying, Hey, you know what? I don't know either. I'm not sure the best way to do this either. Yeah. And you know, we're not going to be able to get there. So that's my biggest thing. Whenever I talk to people and they say, how do I talk to my kids about death? Be honest and say, you know what? I'm not sure how we're going to do this either, but we're going to start. If you have a question and I don't know the answer, we'll find somebody that does. We'll look it up. We'll figure it out together because it is a difficult conversation. Oh, absolutely. And I'm the boomer generation. So I grew up when children were to be seen and not heard. And don't ask questions. I mean, that was just, you did not question authority. And that was in all areas. And that that obviously didn't work. But I think part of it was parents didn't feel they could maintain that authority if you let the children see that you didn't know everything, that you weren't ahead of them miles on every single front. And it's funny because 
we are now teaching things like servant leadership and employee buy-in and having a good culture at work. And it's no different than a parent deciding to include their child in their family plan in how we deal with difficult conversations, how we deal with punishment, how we deal with whatever. You know, we, we never stray far from where we should have started. And that idea of if we don't act like we know everything, our children won't listen to us. And that figure of authority, it makes sense. That's the way that people used to think. But then I really started to ask myself, do I want my children to look at me as like I'm up on this pedestal and that I'm this figure of authority? Or do I want them to see me as somebody that still makes mistakes and somebody that doesn't know everything? And somebody that they can come to because they know that even if I don't know it, we'll be able to figure it out together. Because I think about how many times I navigated really difficult situations by myself Mm. because I didn't have that idea of, I can just go to my parents about this. I can talk to somebody. And like my grandmother was amazing. There was things that I used to talk to my grandmother about that I wouldn't talk to anybody else about. But some of it was that she really showed up for me that way of, you know what, we're not always going to do this right, but I love you no matter what, no matter what you do, I will love and I will support you. And I'm trying to mirror that with my children, that I don't want them to bow down to me like I'm some figure of authority. I want them to trust me and to know that I will be there to help them. Because I do, I worry now with kids, with social media and the bullying online and bullying in person and, you know, suicide rates in children is going up, teenagers, like I worry about all of that with my kids. And I would rather have them come to me and say, hey, I'm having some weird thoughts. I'm really struggling and not feel like they're going to get in trouble, not feel like I'm going to lecture them about it feel that they will be supported and heard and that I'm going to say, we will work through this together, even though it's going to be hard, even though it's going to be not something that I want to do. Ideally, I won't ever have to. But the reality is, especially having a young woman in the world, I know some of the things that I came up against. Yeah. And to think that she's never going to have to deal with these things, that's just putting my head in the sand. It's not realistic. But if she does, or when she does, I want her to come to me and to say, hey, this really crappy thing happened to me. I'm really struggling. Can we please do this together? Yeah. And you brought up a really important point because I think... I grew up with suicidal ideation, not knowing what it was, but taking my life was an option on the table. I often say whether I burnt the toast or a family member died, it was just part of, I can do A, B, C, or take my life. And I didn't know that everybody didn't think like that, but I didn't know that I wasn't the only person on the planet who thought like And not knowing that, one, all the thoughts that run through our head, 
They're not real. They're not necessarily true. And we don't have to act on them. But children can't know that because we've never talked about it. Mm-hmm. And it's, we're damned if we do, we're damned if we don't. But they've proven that people don't take their lives and go through suicide because you've mentioned it or because you've asked them. People are more likely to get help and to try and work it through if you do ask. So it stands to reason to me that we have to find a way, age appropriate, to start conversations. And it's not about suicide. It's about your brain. You know, another one of our guests, him and I had this big conversation. He said, nobody teaches you to drive your brain. It is this incredible computer that, in all honesty, could take on the biggest AI there is. And yet we don't have, not only do we not have a manual, we don't even think about teaching people how to deal with your brain until something horrendous happens and then people go to therapy and get some help. But just think where we'd be if we actually started out stating, you have this incredible computer-like machine within you that directs all you do. Let's give you the opportunity to use it well. And we just don't. We really don't. And I think that's some of what Buddhism or Hinduism, when they teach meditation, like that's what they're trying to teach. But we don't, again, I'm thinking the United States, most of us don't access that when we're younger. Like I turned towards that when I was in my 20s, after I'd already had nervous breakdowns and a suicide attempt. And like, I was already going to therapy. Like I was already on prescription medication. There was all these other things that everybody went to first versus let's teach her how to calm her mind a little bit. Teach her that, yes, some of the voices, not voices, but some of the words running through her head are not necessarily... And one of the things that... So I read tarot cards part-time. That's one of my part-time jobs. And one of the things that I tell people all the time when I read tarot cards is one of the suits in the cards represents our thoughts about ourself, our thoughts about the world around us. And I say it over and over again when I read cards. Most of the time, the thoughts that were there were put there when we were children by our parents, by our schools, by our churches, by our communities. And so if we silence some of that noise through meditation or through prayer, right? Something that allows us to sit calm, quiet without a bunch of TVs and radios and social media and all this other stuff, right? When we get really quiet and we think about some of the things that are being said in our head, right? It sounds like it's us saying it to ourselves. If we really think about it, was that our mom? Was that our dad? Was that our fourth grade teacher? Like, where did that come from? Because if we think about it, oftentimes it's like, oh, that's not actually what I believe about myself. That's not what I believe about the world. But we, again, we don't teach children 
to question things that are being said to them by our parents and by our schools and by our churches and by our communities. We teach them to follow the rules and sit down and listen and take the notes. And like, yeah, in some ways that's really good. It does help them. But if we can't teach them how to discern between their thoughts and some of the other stuff that's just being put in their brains, it really can lead to a lot of confusion and anxiety and feelings of why do I feel this way? Why would I even think something like that? It's like, maybe it's because the video you watched yesterday, like you didn't realize it. But maybe it's just that video you watched yesterday. Part of your brain is chewing on it a little bit. Yeah. But that's a skill that has to be taught. It's not natural for us. Or maybe it would be natural if it wasn't taught out of us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's like everything else. It goes in cycles. Fashion goes in cycles. Sport even goes in cycles. Everything has, what is it, every, every time there is a season or I messed that one up. For everything, there is a season. That's all well and good, but just think how much more adaptable our children would be if, as they grow and learn to walk and fall down and get up and learn to walk, we get them to understand that works with the brain too. You can choose which thoughts you want to have. You can choose empowering thoughts or you can choose to just let the thoughts be from wherever without, like you say, examining them. And I know there's a lot of uh, people now whose children are meditating, starting to meditate and understand because we're at a time now where there are so many people that are considered on the spectrum. It's so much so, I'm beginning to wonder, are we not all on a spectrum? Because we're humans and we all have different levels of anxiety and and strengths and fear and what have you. So I think we all fit there somewhere. Would it not be better then to get us to start from within work with our brains and some of the challenges for kids when their brains work a certain way and they're now comfortable with that they're absolutely brilliant okay there's a lot of you'll find scientists and people that work in stem and what have you that have been tagged as autistic but they are much more focused on what they're doing because that's where their interest lies. So to me, that is not a, that is not a flaw. That is a huge strength. Yeah. We don't, we don't tend to do well with people that are different, right? It's again, we want people to fit into this box and we want, because it makes it easier on everybody around us, right? If we fit into the box and you're right with people being diagnosed with all these different autism and ADHD and like all these things, I do agree that there is something right that is presenting in people that way. But I feel like I've read some of the stuff and even from my own personal experience, I know that when I had 
trauma and pain that I wasn't processing, that I wasn't dealing well with, it was like this broken record playing in my head. And one time I was working with my husband because we're both chefs. That's like our background. We were catering a party together. I had had an experience that I was like working through and I was processing and him and I, we talk about everything. So like he knows everything that's going on. And I said something to him and I was like, I just literally can't stop thinking about it. I was like, it feels like it's on a loop in my head. And I was like, everything that I'm doing, it's the same sentence just keeps going over and over and over. And he was like, how are you getting anything done? I was like, I don't know, honestly, how I'm getting anything done. I'm like, I'm doing the best I can, but I'm probably not doing great at it because this thought is playing in the background. So I couldn't focus on cooking. I couldn't focus on plating the things. I couldn't focus on interacting with our clients because my brain was just chewing on this difficult situation. And it seems like so many of us have unprocessed grief and trauma and pain. And then it presents itself like they can't focus. They can't pay attention. They can't do this. They can't do that. So it's not that I'm even saying, I don't think people shouldn't be on some of the medications or whatnot, but I do feel that for at least a percentage of the people that are now getting diagnosed with these things, if we could really treat the root cause of the symptom, that would be the longer term goal right? Not just putting them on a medication that then they're going to stay on for the rest of their life, which yes, it might help them focus. But then what about when they're not on it? What about when they have different things? Like we don't always focus on the right things. It's um, You leave the house and you're driving somewhere and you suddenly think, oh, did I leave my hair dryer or my curling iron plugged in or whatever? And yeah, that's going to play on a loop forever. What's the smartest thing to do? Turn the car around, go home and check. And then you can get on with your day. We need to do that with these traumas, with these loops that we get into for all things and allow ourselves the time to actually go, okay, this is going around so much. I need to process this. So I need to pay attention so I can process it and get it off the table. Yeah. But that goes back to that bigger problem of society doesn't set it up for me to say to my bosses, hey, I had this situation happen last week. I'm really having a hard time. I need to maybe take a couple days off so that I can relax a little bit, deal with it, process it. They're going to be like, what do you mean you need days off to work through that? Oh, like I would have never been able to do that. And because my husband is so observant of me, I probably wouldn't have even told him what happened, except he could tell. He could tell by looking at me. He was like, something's wrong. What happened? And then when I told him, he was like, oh no, like you should call a lawyer. That's a really big deal. Yeah. And I was like, no, it's not that big. Because again, as a woman, I'm like, that's not that big of a deal. It's fine. And he was like, no, not fine. This is a big deal. But again, if I didn't have him to even pull me out of it, 
it would have really just stayed inside of me. And I would have just continued to hold it in and push it down and tell myself it's not a big deal. And why was I so upset? And yourself, because that's what we do. We don't second guess the other people involved in a trauma. We don't second guess the the um, perpetrator in the case of somebody beats somebody up on, on the playground. When you're dri- driving that around in your brain, you're talking about how weak you are and, oh, why was so weak? Why didn't I stand up? Why didn't I say this? Why didn't I do that? Nowhere in there are you thinking, why is that person a bully? Why did they do that to me? What is their issue? Rather than taking it upon yourself to dismantle yourself. But we don't well, yeah. teach kids to build themselves up. We do not teach it. And you know what? Like though, in some cases, think about the victim blaming, especially when it comes to women. Society really does judge them. You say that somebody sexually assaulted you. What were you wearing? Where were you at? How much did you have to drink? Not in some cases, literally not believing them. Even when there's proof, there's still no belief. And so as a woman, we are subconsciously taught to doubt ourselves, to hold it in. Because it's like, even if I do say it, nobody's going to believe me and it's just going to make me feel worse. Well, not only that, then others will look at you differently. But let's take that one step further. When uh, my daughter was a teenager, her and her friends were accosted by bullies in a big shopping mall and they stole their money and their jackets, and I can't remember what else they took. But it was a really big deal. And the police said to us, that was a very expensive jacket she was wearing. Okay, this is backwards. I don't care if it was gold-plated. It's hers. The victim-blaming thing, it's not about what she had or didn't have. It should have been about somebody needs to teach these other kids that, sorry, if you don't have it, either get a job or do something else to earn the money to buy your own whatever. My daughter and her friends all worked at McDonald's. They they, they got their things as they did. But you're absolutely right. It was you shouldn't have shouldn't have had these good jackets on. What are you supposed to do? Buy them and hang them in your closet? Like that doesn't make any sense to me. And, yeah. and why can't people have nice things? You, society, I don't know. We've become so apologetic for anything we have or not being exactly like the other one. So. Even though we want everybody to fit in the box, (laughs) we really don't. Mm -hmm. And and I, yeah, I'm not a box kind of person. (laughs) No, I'm not a box kind of person either. And, And I'm thinking too, if somebody is stealing from another person, we punish, right? We're a society that punishes. Yeah. But again, we don't ask the deeper questions of why, what's going on in your life? What can we do to help you heal so that 
you don't feel that is the best option. Because I tell my kids all the time, we have almost all hand-me-down clothing. I never buy them super expensive anything. Right now, we just can't afford it. If I could afford it, yeah, I probably would. But right now, that's not an option. But I have really tried to stress to them that honestly, money, expensive things, they're not going to make you happy. They're not going to fill that hole that somebody thinks stealing that expensive jacket is going to fill. And so we just don't really deal with that, right? It's like, we just punish by putting people in juvenile detention centers or prisons, and it doesn't actually help them heal themselves and heal their life and be able to get out of this cycle. And it's so frustrating. Oh, totally. Teaching them how to not get caught or sending them into places where they are living with people that teach them how to do things even worse. worse. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. And you and I are not going to be able to fix the entire world in the next 10 minutes. <laughs> I wish I, I could, though. Oh, my God. Yes, I, I so would love to. But I want us to start this conversation so that these difficult conversations can be had, even the ones about why are you stealing and why do you covet what someone else has. And at the time, for the kids... They had worked. They were all 15 years old. They had worked hard for what they had. And I just, it just seemed so wrong to me that the answer from the adults was, maybe you shouldn't. No, we have to, we have to work to, I guess, have people have more understanding. I don't want people to be without I certainly don't. I am quite honestly not a socialist because I believe in free enterprise. I believe if you work hard, we've had very lean years for a very long time. And you can you can have fun. You can make fun with your family and your friends and your children with no money. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's not about money. It's not about things. But when one can have a few things, when you haven't had them as a child, we came to this country with the clothes on our back. When you haven't had things, you do maybe look after them a little better because Mm -hmm. it's not the usual. But how do we get to a place where everybody is more understanding that your time can come. It may not be right this moment. But the fact is, we don't teach that either. And it's sad to me that you and I can talk this whole time about all the things we don't teach. And the things that we do teach in school, you remember the last time you use trigonometry in your job? Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. In grade nine geography, the teacher had us coloring maps. 
does nothing for me now. It didn't help me remember countries or anything else. Nope. But just imagine if we had half an hour where we taught people to center themselves and go into their own mind and check what's there. That's a really good start. It would be a lovely start. And hopefully we will swing in that direction. Hopefully we will start to teach more of these life skills, right? That I guess is what you would call them, not as much of the book skills that most places are so focused on. Yeah, and book skills are good, but we need to have the soft skills, okay? Children need to know how to interact with other children. They have to know how to approach an adult how to not approach certain adults, and how to tell the difference, how to be aware of their surroundings and things that, to a mother, seem natural. Those are the first things you want to teach your child. Why don't they do that in school? This has turned into a very different conversation than I thought we were first going to have. <laughs> Me too, but this has been lovely. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, I love it, and... My most important question is, Jill, will you come back? I would love to. It would be my pleasure anytime. Oh, that's wonderful. I think there's an awful lot more we can explore. This has been more of more of a exploration of what questions do we need to ask than anything else. But I think that's really important. And I think it... We touched on the fact that we've all gone through trauma. We've all gone through things that would be good for us not to. And yet, we're not taking a collective look at humans and saying, you know what, we all need to help each other. Because that old adage, it takes a village. Yeah, guess what? The earth is a village. It's just a really big one. We all need to get involved in everybody else's uplifting. Yes, I agree. It was absolutely lovely to have you with me today. Jill McLennan is a death doula and so much more. You'll find all her links and everything to do with what she does, including your end-of-life workbook. Uh, there's a link for how you can get that. And we will definitely be having Jill back so we can continue our conversation. It will no doubt be in a very different area because that's how it goes when we just have a conversation. I'm Elaine Lindsay. This is Suicides and Forgiveness. I thank you so much for watching. And like I say every week, Make the very best of your today, every day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. Thank you for being here for another inspiring episode of Suicides and Forgiveness. We appreciate you tuning in. Please subscribe and download on your favorite service and check out SNF's YouTube channel or Facebook community. If you have the chance to leave a five-star rating or review, it'd be greatly appreciated.
Please refer this to a friend you know who may benefit from the hope and inspiration from our guests. Suicide Zen Forgiveness was brought to you by the following sponsors. Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you rocking page one in the search results. Canada's keynote humorist, Judy Croon, motivational speaker, comedian, author, and stand-up coach at Second City. Judy has been involved for over a decade in the City Street Outreach Program in Toronto. Lisa Sugarman, Boston-based author, columnist, and crisis counselor with The Trevor Project, America's largest suicide and crisis support network for at-risk LGBTQ youth, storyteller with the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, survivor of suicide loss, and mental health advocate. Lisa's purpose aligns with the lanes as Lisa shares content and sparks conversations to help end the stigma of suicide and connect people with the support and hope they deserve. Do you have a story to share? Do you know someone you think would be a great guest? Please go to SZF42.com. And for our American listeners, that's SZF42.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again.